can turn to Isaiah 9. <clears throat> Isaiah 9. So this is our third sermon in the Advent series. We're looking at the Advent in the Old Testament. And the first week we looked at Genesis 3.15 and uh, the, the account of the fall of man and the promise that the seed of woman would bear a serpent crusher. Remember that? It will crush the serpent's head. That, of course, we know is the promised Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 7 last week, we saw the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, and what that meant. Today we're going to read Isaiah 9, and we're going to see the great reversals that come about as a result of the coming of the Messiah. So if you will stand with me, we will read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter number 9. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior shall battle tumult, and every garment, let me start over on that verse, every boot of the tramp, trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful promises that we see in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah and the fact that because Jesus has come, there are so many consequences. We currently live in a land where there are skirmishes that we are fighting with a defeated enemy. But one day, when Jesus comes back in the second coming, he will rule forever with justice and righteousness and peace will be all over the land. And Lord, we are longing for that day. But I pray that you will encourage our hearts and, and uh, strengthen our hearts in Jesus Christ today. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. Now, if you remember the context of Isaiah, chapter seven to nine, uh, you know that the things look bleak in Judah during the lifetime of Isaiah the prophet Assyria is uh, knocking at the door. 
the two northern, the, the two kingdoms north of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria have joined together in a military league, hoping in vain that they'll be able to ward off this rising empire. Jerusalem is in the middle of Judah, and many of the towns around Jerusalem are beginning to be overrun. Jerusalem is a stronghold at this time, but the Assyrians are knocking at the door. And um, so the, 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 the people of Judah are very fearful. King Ahaz, if you remember last week, the Bible says that, or Isaiah says that he, his legs knocked as if, shook as if a leaf shaking in the breeze. And, and it's looking very dark and very bleak. When you look at chapter number eight of Isaiah, so if you have your Bibles, look into the end of chapter number eight. You're going to see how bleak things are. Speaking of the Israelites in Judah, look at verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. These, these are God's people he's talking about here. The they are Jews, not Assyrians or anybody else. They're greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, what are they going to do? They're going to be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king, Ahaz, and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, this is all they're going to see. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. They see distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so here, Isaiah is, is describing the fact that things are bleak, and they're only going to get worse. It's not going to get better anytime soon. It's only get worse, and so things are bleak and dark. Have you ever watched one of those renovation shows on TV? You know, those unreal reality shows? Um, you know, there, there's a, there have been a lot of them out there over the years. You've got Chip and Joanna Gaines are probably the most famous ones, right? And if you've ever seen the show, you know the storyline. They find this dilapidated, beat up, ugly house and they're, and they're showing it to this couple and there's always one person in the couple who has no way to visualize what things are going to look like. And Chip and Joanna, Joanna, I guess would be the main one, just says, trust me, it's going to be beautiful. And as far as that couple knows, uh, they don't see the house again. I'm, I'm sure that, who knows about these shows, right? But supposedly they don't see the house again. So they see this dilapidated house. And then sometime later, they have the big reveal and it looks nothing like what it did. It looks like a brand new house, doesn't it? The transformation is marvelous, it's wonderful, it's, it's breathtaking sometimes, it's almost instantaneous. And that is the difference between Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 8. Look again at the end of chapter number 8, we see darkness and distress and gloom and anguish. And then there's this tremendous change. There's no longer gloom and doom and darkness, but rather there's light and joy and peace, a glorious new creation, a new reality. In, its re in reality, it's a great reversal has come about. And Isaiah 9 really is promising people a great reversal. He's promising that to you and to I as well. And this great reversal happens because the king was born and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time thinking about this child that Isaiah 
speaks of, who is such a great blessing. And then we're going to talk about the blessing of renewal and redemption and new life that is to come. But let's first look at the, the description of this reversal. It's just, it's, it, it's incomprehensible, the reversal. So when you look at verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 9, you see the promise reversal. And really, they are the result of Christmas. Have you ever thought about that? This reversal, the three verses we're going to read, are really the reversal that comes about because we celebrate Christmas. And what we see, first of all, is glory replaces doom in verse number one. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he was brought into contempt, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, what on earth is he talking about here? Well, what Isaiah just did is he jumped forward 700 years. But I need to show you what's happening first. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a map. And if you're not a map person, I don't apologize. I am. I love maps. But I want to show you what's going on so you get a big picture. Now, this is Israel approximately the time of Isaiah's time. Isaiah is down here in Jerusalem, in Judah. You see that territory, right? The area that he's talking about, Zebulun, Naphtali, it's northern Galilee. You all see that up there, right? Now, this map I've got up here actually shows the Assyrian Empire already conquering this area. This was what was Syria. Remember how last week we saw that Syria and the northern kingdom we're in league together. This map already shows Assyria having taken over because Damascus is right over here, okay? So we have Zebulun, Naphtali, and the way by the sea. Well, the Romans, there was a road in ancient times, so we're talking, we've jumped forward, remember, 700 years. It was called the Via Maris. You ever heard of the Via Maris? That's Latin for way by the sea, and you might be able to make it out. It's right here. The Via Maris runs right here, and the way by the sea, of course, the Mediterranean Sea, is this road right here, and it connects the Fertile Crescent up here and Egypt all the way down here, right? But it touches the Sea of Galilee, and I've been on it before. And some of you, if you've been to Israel, you've been on the Via Maris, and that is what Isaiah is talking about. Assyria runs through and conquers the north first, But Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ came, and where was his first ministry? It was in Galilee up here. You see, in Jesus' day, the center was right here in Jerusalem. Just like here in the United States, the center of everything is Washington, D.C., right? In Jesus' day, it was right here. Galilee, that was three days' journey up to the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, where Jesus was, his ministry was located. It was a backwater for, as far as they were concerned. Nothing important happened. Added to that, if you remember the Assyrian Empire, when they came in, when they conquered a nation, their policy was we're going to pull people out of this area and we're going to redistribute people. And so these people, all these Gentiles came in to this area around Galilee, and even during Jesus' day, there were a lot of Gentiles in around Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. But Matthew 4, 
Matthew 4 quotes this verse that we just read, describing the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. The son of David, the son of David didn't go to the epicenter of Jewish elitism to show himself. Rather, he went to the common people of Galilee that the elites held in contempt. Isn't that wonderful to know? Jesus came and, he, and there was a, the place that was in contempt is no longer in contempt. And so first of all, we see that, that glory replaces doom. Secondly, we see that light replaces darkness. Look at verse number two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. You remember the end of chapter number eight? We just read it a minute ago. And they, they will be thrust into what? Thick darkness. The Jews will be thrust into thick darkness. But one day, Isaiah the prophet says, the people who were in darkness will see a great light. One day, the light of the world will come. One day, light will shine and darkness will be gone. And the light did come. And Jesus said in John chapter number eight, in verse number 12, I am the light of the world. Remember when he said that? I am the light of the world and his light shone. But we know that his light, the light of his glory was veiled in flesh. Except for one time, just a little north of the Sea of Galilee, he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the three. Remember that? And when his glory shone, what happened to the three? They fell down because his glory was so overwhelming to, to uh, fallen humanity. And so um, glory, not gloom, light instead of darkness. And the third result that we see is that joy replaces sorrow. Look at verse number three. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. They are, as the, they are glad when they divide the spoil. And, and that is describing the people who, the new nation that Jesus is raising up. Even this day, the kingdom of God is advancing and more and more people are being added to his kingdom. The, the description here is very interesting, and you may or may not realize how attached they were to the harvest time. And there were two harvest times in Israel, and both times were times of rejoicing. One harvest time was the Feast of Weeks or Feast of First Fruits in the springtime. That celebration was the celebration of the barley and the wheat harvest, because in Israel, you planted in the fall. The winter rains came, the wheat and the barley came up. Barley was harvested somewhere usually around um, Passover. Wheat, a few weeks later, that's why it's called the Feast of Weeks. And they celebrate it. In the fall, they had a, a, a festival as well. They called the Feast of Booths. The King James calls it the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would make a tent out of, out of leaves and that harvest celebrated the grape harvest and the olive harvest and the fig harvest. And interesting about the olives that you may or may not know, they prayed for rain all summer. If you've ever been to Israel, all summer long, it does not rain. It doesn't rain. There's, there's no rain. And the olives develop, but the olives are just little hard kernels. 
And all it takes is a, about a half inch of rain for at the right time, at the very end of the growing season, for those olives to become plump, juicy olives that um, most people like and I don't, okay? I had to throw that in there. That and the same thing with the grapes. And so they would celebrate that. And there was a time of rejoicing. And this is what God, what uh, Isaiah is talking about. There's rejoicing. And then, of course, you understand that when they would go in and conquer a nation, they would divide the spoil amongst one another. The very fact that you won the battle or won the war was time of rejoicing. And the way you celebrate it was dividing the spoils. And this is what he's talking about here. And the Christian life, the Christian life is one of great joy, isn't it? Are you a joyful Christian? Jesus said that he has come to bring joy. Are you joyful? And he, he comes to bring joy abundantly. Does hope in Jesus give you joy in a dark season? I don't know about you, but I, I think the times when joy settles in my soul the most is when a loved one passes away, right? Because we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Jo in our joy, we know that Jesus Christ has saved them if they're a, a believer, and one day we will see them again if they were suffering. Guess what? We have the joy of knowing this dear person that I love so much is no longer suffering. They saw Jesus before I did. Isn't that, a, isn't that a source of joy? We have a source of joy knowing that what our trials that we have here on earth, are they're only temporary, only for a little while. Yes, I wish that they would pass. Yes, I wish that God would just remove trials from my life, but he doesn't do that. And it increases our joy, it increases our hope. And so anchored in Jesus Christ, the believer has joy that is un touchable by circumstances, and it's different from happiness. And so these are, these are the, the, the promise reversals because of Christmas, the, the coming of the Messiah. But I, I want to look at the immediate cause. What's the immediate cause for this future freedom? Well, if you look at verses four and five, after spending three verses describing the joy that is to come, Isaiah explains the cause. And I want you to look at this. It's figurative language. It's somewhat difficult, but let's look. Verse number four, he says this. By the way, before I get there, he's, Isaiah is now looking far into the future, even past us. Far into the future at final deliverance. And he says in verse number four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now this recounts the exile when the, when the Israelites were coming back into Israel, they defeated the Midianites. And this is what it recounts. Look at verse number five. Every boot of the champion warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The one, the one who is to come who will deliver his people from his oppressors. And this, this deliverance is twofold. We see a twofold deliverance here if you think through your salvation. Number one, there is a, a, um, a deliverance from the bondage, from personal sin. I don't know about you, but on that day, 
that I wake up to never face temptation will be a glorious day. Are you with me on that? Won't that be incredibly awesome? The freedom from the bondage of sin. Now, we have that freedom now. Christ has broken those bonds, but we live in sinful flesh. And so that defeated enemy is always coming back, taking little pot shots and and that sort of thing, trying to get us sucked back in. But there's going to come a day in Jesus Christ when he comes back when temptation will be no more. And our only thoughts and our only desires will be completely righteous and completely um, um, true and just and upright. And I am looking for that day. There's a second deliverance that he mentions here, and that is from those who oppress the followers of God. On that day, we will never again face corruption from fallen human governments. Amen? Notice how God does this in verse number five. Look at verse number five. It's very important that you see how he does this. He does it by bringing an end to warfare the, the warfare that, that brings about the oppression. You see that? Now, notice what he doesn't do. It, the imagery is so important. He doesn't become a new oppressor. He does away with warfare completely. You see that? Um, he's not going to supplant oppression by becoming a greater oppressor. That's not what he's doing. He's... He, um, he will do away with all wars. The imagery is powerful. The boots that shook the earth will be burned. The yoke and the rod of the oppressors will be broken. The fabrics soaked in blood are burned. Wars have ceased. And the ultimate source of this peace and the end of wars is mentioned in the very next verse. And what is that? As we look at together at verses six and seven, the the answer is a child is born. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's as if the prophet Isaiah is standing in front of a manger already. And and he's watching this baby uh, being born and he's explaining to us that this child born in a manger makes all the difference. This is the child that brings about the great reversal. This is the child that brings glory and not gloom. This is the child that brings joy and not sorrow. This is the child that brings light and not darkness. These are reassuring truths. And we see that he reassures us, first of all, by what he does. He will be a universal king. He'll be a universal king. What does it say? It says, for unto us a child is born and the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, he's bearing government on his shoulders. That is great news for Isaiah's suffering peers in his own day. They were suffering under the failed king Ahaz. And it's great news for us, unlike the fallen leaders of our world who constantly break their promises, constantly massage language to get their way, constantly um, oppress people to, 
to advance their own purposes and causes. Jesus will never break his promises. Jesus will never oppress. Jesus' kingdom never ends. It does not crumble. Isaiah says, under the last of the oppressor, or uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, he, he will, the last oppressor will give away to, to military conquest. And when the waves of this world crash over it in hatred and malice and anger and violence, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is immovable. Think about what we see and have seen in history. Over and over and over, people have tried to crush the church. We, we talk about China all the time, right? When the Cultural Revolution started, they estimated between five and 10 million Christians. Most recent estimates are 100 million Christians in China, even as the Chinese church is, or Chinese government throwing pastors into jail. You go to other communist countries, there's a church in North Korea, we know that. They're um, under the Muslim countries. God is working and building and growing this church. What's amazing about Muslim countries, and you don't hear this anywhere else, I'm gonna share this, most of you know this, I know. But you're not allowed to have uh, holy scriptures in a Muslim country. And Muslims are seeking for the truth. And what God does, it's very interesting. You need to listen to how I'm framing this. He comes to people in dreams. And over and over, you see, he comes to people in dreams and says, go see this person. They go see that person, and that person ends up being somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the person gets saved. And those conversion stories are over and over and over. Dear believer, governments... And oppressive regimes will not overpower God's church. Isn't that wonderful? And so the government will be on his his shoulders. Verse number seven, look at verse number seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's completely indestructible. It's unstoppable. It's triumphant. And he will reside Um, over the the throne of David and over his kingdom and he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And he says, from this time forth and forevermore. And nothing can thwart the rule of Jesus Christ. He will build his church. He will fulfill his purposes. He will establish his kingdom until at last, at the end of the ages, the glory of the Lord shall cover the whole earth as the waters cover the earth. Isn't that going to be a wonderful time? It's going to be great. I have a a Bible study group that meets on Friday mornings, and we're finishing up the book of Revelation. And this is exactly what you see in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Over and over, there's a proclamation in, in Revelation that says, the lamb wins. The lamb wins constantly, Uh, The lamb wins, Christ triumphs. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she in fact would be the virgin of whom Isaiah spoke, who would conceive and bear a son called Emmanuel, Gabriel appears and uses the language of this very passage to explain to her who her son would be. Luke 1 in verse number 32 says this, he will be great. 
and called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How wonderful is that? Now, Christ's kingdom, as we know, is, it's not a political or military or economic kingdom. It's not at this time in its character. It's spiritual in its nature, isn't it? That's the kingdom right now. Yet, it is un- immovable. It's unstoppable. And so glory, not gloom. Light, not darkness. Joy, not anguish are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. We just bend our knee to the sovereign king who rules over all, the child who was born in a, in a manger. And that's the first thing that Isaiah says. It's what he will do. He will reign over all. But then he does something else. He said the, the other promise is that who he is, who he is. And he goes on to describe him. He uses four compound words. First of all, he says, wonderful counselor. Christ is extraordinary in his wisdom and ability to execute plans, isn't he? Jesus is a source of all wisdom. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul contrasts the wisdom of this world with God's wisdom. What, uh, what is the wisdom of God for this world? It's foolishness. But, God's, but Paul said that it's the foolishness of God that will overcome the wisdom of this world. Christ is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is completely sufficient, and he's the source of all wisdom. Believe it or not, the cross is the wisdom of God. If I had to dream up a plan of redemption, the cross wouldn't have been it. Would have been your plan? It wouldn't have been your plan either, I know. And so what looks like folly and failure, the cross is the great wisdom of God securing salvation for the world. Jesus Christ crucified, therefore, has become for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, sanctification, redemption. In other words, Jesus is all the wisdom that we need, all the answer that we need. A sufficient savior for the world, the wonderful counselor. Secondly, he's mighty God. Jesus is the omnipotent God, isn't he? His miracles attest to this. We, we saw that veiled, we mentioned it was veiled, but it was the, the mighty power of God was still there in Galilee. The feeding of the 5,000, right? The calming of the waters of the sea, the expelling of demons, the healing of the lame, and sick, the raising of the dead. There, are, there is no enemy too powerful for Jesus Christ. Yet, he was born completely helpless. The omnipotent one came in the form of a helpless child. He allowed himself to be carried in the arms of the person that he was going to save one day. He allowed himself to be nailed to a tree. But this moment, the moment when it seemed like the greatest failure was actually the moment of greatest and most powerful victory 
forever conquering sin and the grave. He's the mighty God. Third, he's the everlasting Father. He's one with the Father. He's everlasting. He's divine. And he loves as the Father loves his children. Nothing can separate us from this love. And then finally, he's the Prince of Peace. He is the shalom. That's that word, shalom there, Prince of Peace. What is he talking about, Prince of Peace? Well, first of all, he's talking about peace between us and the Father, isn't he? Because we know from Scripture that humanity is at war with God for the most part. They don't even know it, do they? We're at war with God. Most of us don't even know it. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, he is He himself is our peace. And so we have peace with God. We have peace with one another. And ultimately, the whole world will be a a world of peace in the consummation of the day of the Lord. And so it's light, not darkness. It's joy, not anguish. It's glory, not gloom. Because whatever trial we endure, whatever fear strikes our heart as we face the end of one and the beginning of another, in Jesus, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding can guard our hearts and minds because he is the Prince of Peace. Yesterday, I made a visit with somebody who doesn't have very long to live, probably a matter of days or weeks. That's it. And there, while there is a certain amount of anxiety over, I wonder how exactly it's going to feel when I die, there, there is a tremendous peace over this dear saint's heart and life. Just wonderful person. If you want to be encouraged, uh, you can go see this person whose days are numbered, may not even see Christmas and wonderful testimony, wonderful peace, and you will walk away with your hearts encouraged. And that only comes because of Jesus Christ being the Prince of Peace. This one, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, all together sufficient for your hearts, for your souls, for your need, your pardon, your answers, your comfort, your hope, your heaven, this one is for you. If only you would come and bend your knee to him upon whose shoulders the government rests and upon whose kingdom there shall be no end. You are invited today to King Jesus to come bend your knee to him and to find in him all and all that your heart truly needs. And this is the third sermon of Advent in the Old Testament. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. We thank you for the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. We experience joy now, but one day it will be fully consummated in the day of the Lord, and our joy will be complete. Lord, I I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. It's such a wonderful message in, in gloomy and dark times that we can turn to our Savior who uh, gave all as a sacrifice so that we can be with him. Lord, I pray that not only as we bend our knee in salvation to him, that daily we will make it a point to bend our knee in submission 
to your daily will, day in and day out. In Christ's name we pray, amen.